All right, good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading today. Uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at is um, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. If you'd like to follow along with the physical Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. Uh, there's a table of contents in the front to find the book of John. No shame in using that. You're going to go through like most of the book and get to ish here. It'll kind of look like that. Um, once you get to John, just look for the big number six and you'll get there. All right, John chapter six, starting at verse one. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Amen. Thanks, Becca. Good morning. It's great to see you all. For those of you who don't worship at High Point regularly, or maybe this is your first time, my name is Devin, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. It is very good to see you all, uh, and you are here on a great day because you get to be some of the first to know that we're changing our service times. So don't get too comfortable with everything you did this morning. Your routine, rethink that. Yeah, I mean, I know if you're like me that your kids under the age of five just love the idea of changing routines. <laughs> you're so excited. Uh, but, but truly, on September the 3rd, not that far from now, alarmingly close actually, on September the 3rd, we are going to be changing our service times from 9 and 11 to 8.30 and 10.30. So update your calendars now. If, you're, if you are somebody who gets into the flow of routine like I do and just forgets that things change, please put your, give yourself a calendar reminder for the Saturday before. Church is starting at 8.30 and 10.30, not 9 or 11. And we're not doing this because we're sadists. We're doing this actually because it's really, really important to make sure that we can maintain a high standard of ministry for everybody who comes to us and above all, that we can effectively and faithfully serve the kids of this church. 
This is an awesome church to be a part of because there, really, there's just a ton of little people running around, and it's a tremendous responsibility to pass the faith on to the next generation. But for a while now, really, almost as long as I've been a part of this church, so I mean, going on two years, people have been saying, look at these numbers creeping up in kids' ministry, especially during the first service. During the first service, we're just seeing more and more and more and more kids. And just to give you one tangible example, for the nurseries that serve our smallest, uh, smallest of the small, I'm trying to remember, what is that, twos and threes? On first service, on average, there's about 42 and three-year-olds who will attend. And you spread those across four rooms and you've got 10 in each room and that's kind of manageable. I mean, it's, it's like pushing it, but it's manageable. I mean, it's safe, but there's a lot of little kids running around. But then you show up for second service. You've still got four classrooms. You could accommodate another 40 if you wanted, but only 10 are there in the second service. We wanna make sure that every kid who attends this church, whatever their age, gets access to the same high quality care and faith building instruction and we think that this is one of the simplest ways to balance that equation. So if you do find yourself like me on the 3rd of September, feeling grumpy that you have lost a half hour of sleep, just remember that you're doing it for the kids. <laughs> Last thing to say about that. For those of you who faithfully volunteer at this church, especially for those of you who are faithfully volunteering in kids' ministry, this is worth you having an intentional conversation with like your staff liaison or the folks who are leading in your ministry. I would encourage you, go to ask them, because they'll ask you too, but go to ask them just to see if there is a way that you can make sure that the volunteer equation gets balanced too, because as more and more and more kids start to attend that second service, we wanna make sure that we don't just have room available for them, we wanna make sure that we have all of you who are like there to actually pass on the faith to the kids. All right, I'm not gonna preach on that. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, we, we can lean on you, leaning, leaning on your everlasting arms. Lord, uh, I come today leaning on you. I admit from the outset that uh, I can't accomplish the things that you've called me to do. Lord, you, you say if you be lifted up, you'll draw everyone to yourself. God, my arms are not strong enough to hold you up so that everybody can see you, but yet at the same time, you say that you'll use the foolishness of preaching to present your gospel. So I, I pray that you would come and be that teacher, that I, your power would be evident in you being lifted up this morning. Give all of us ears to hear and a heart to respond. Uh, it's so easy to look at your word and to miss it. God, today, by the power of the Spirit, help us all to receive what you're saying. And pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. It's tough to preach Sunday school texts, like the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, I bet I was, I must have been three or four the first time I heard and remember hearing that story. So I'm just gonna go behind the curtain a little bit for a second and tell you a bit what it was like for me this last week. Uh, early in the week, I got a, I got a message from, from Nicole who was getting ready to lead worship. He's like, Devin, you know, what's the idea for this coming Sunday? Let's make sure that we can have some synergy, like preaching and worship. And I was like, oh, it's obvious. It's the feeding of the 5,000. So I, I read it once for 30 seconds, and I was like, well, this is obviously about all of us being the little kid and bringing what little we have to Jesus, and he multiplies it to the need, and then he equips 
us as his disciples to go and faithfully administer the thing that he's multiplied. So this is really about all of us stepping up into ministry and you know, bringing what we have and then letting him multiply it and then us being faithful to execute and provide for the people around us. And I was feeling good about that sermon. <laughs> Until I went back and read John again and again and again, and I was like, it doesn't say that. What's wrong with me? That's what it's supposed to say. And I just kept going over it, and I was like, oh, this is the problem. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 is it's really one of the only miracles in the gospel that occurs across all four of the written gospel narratives. You find it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Matthew and Mark and Luke, you get this greater emphasis on the boy bringing the fish and the loaves to Jesus, and you get this greater emphasis on the apostles like distributing the multiplied fish and loaves to the crowds. But in the Gospel of John, I mean, I dare you, go open it. There's no indication that the boy brings anything to Jesus. Andrew's just like, well, this kid's got something. I mean, you almost get the impression that like Andrew is beating up this little kid and robbing him of his lunch money. <laughs> what? You know, this, this kid doesn't bring anything to Jesus. And then, at the time where the text is supposed to tell me about how all of us are supposed to take what Jesus gives it and multiply it back, it says that Jesus is the one who gives it to everybody who's been told to sit down. So there are some really important differences going on between the text in John and the text in the Gospels. Now, I say all of that to say this. My experience of preparing this sermon is actually the point to this sermon, that it is so easy to be convinced in our own minds and hearts of what the Bible and about what Jesus is supposed to say and supposed to mean because it makes good sense from some other part of Scripture that we miss what Jesus is actually saying and who Jesus is and what he actually means. It's not because we're like bad Christians, but it's because for some reason or another, it's a natural human tendency to take something that we think we know certainly and use it as the lens or the framework or the cognitive box, pick, pick your term and metaphor here, and we use those to make sense of what we're, what's right in front of us. I mean, we do this all the time and not just with the Bible. We do it with our, uh, like our relationships. I think about the first time that I met my wife. Uh, I was attending a church conference in Minnesota and nobody told me she was coming. I was attending a church conference in Minnesota and I was talking with one of my best friends. His name is Matt. And because he and I are the kind of nerds that we are, what we like to do is we like to fight about theology. And that year, the topic in question was predestination. For, against, and what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> and so Matt and I are you know, taking opposing sides in this debate and uh, suddenly there's, there's this like, woman there and she's taking the wrong side in this debate. <laughs> And I'm just like, who are you and what are you doing? I'm fighting with my best friend. Can't you see? And so uh, we, we hit it off so well that we didn't talk for seven years. <laughs> and I realized seven years later when she and I were both attending another version of that same church conference that the framework that I had in mind for that first time seven years ago blinded me to the person who was actually right there in front of me. 
I thought that I had come to this church conference to hash out theology with my best friend Matt, and that and hashing it out always meant an argument. Always meant an argument. And because I was so just caught up in that framework for how this social interaction was gonna go, when she was there too, she didn't know it, but she, like, she just walked right into it, and I completely misread who she was and, and how important she was gonna be to me. We all do this all the time. Psychologists call it schema theory. I mean, if, if any of you have a background in education, I mean, this was really important for me. Some of you know that in a previous life I was a teacher. Um, when I was learning how to be a teacher, this is what I learned, is this, like, Devin, if you wanna help people make sense of something new, you have to find a way to get them to integrate it with what they already know. They have to have some sort of like hook to hang it on, otherwise you're just gonna try to, it's like trying to stick something on the wall and it just drops to the floor. Folks need to have that little bit of connection point, otherwise the new thing gets lost. But what about those times when something so big and so good and so new comes that it's just too heavy to be supported by any of our pre-existing cognitive hooks? That's what happens in this text. All right, so let, let's just turn right into John 15. I, I'm, good, I'm sorry, John 6, rather, 1 to 15. I am going, I, I like John 15 a lot, but <laughs> I'm going to talk through that text for a little bit, and then we're going to talk more about this dynamic of what to do when we're confronted with something new and powerful and easily misunderstood. Uh, I like movies that start at the end of the movie and then kind of explain how they got back there, right? You know, like Saving Private Ryan, Forrest Gump, and so on and so forth. To make sense of a passage like John 6, 1 to 15, you, I really think you have to start with the last couple verses. I'm just going to read verses 14 and 15 again. And I'm quoting now, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, so what's up with this, like, prophet that they try to make king thing, and why does Jesus run away from it? I mean, first off, it's, it's not intuitive to us why seeing Jesus perform a miracle would be the thing that makes them want to make him king. And who, like, who is this prophet? So we've got this prophet king thing happening at the same time. And I mean, I, I imagine if you really put yourself there and you're honest, you have to say, there's got to be something else going on here than what we just see in the text, because it's, it's not obvious. There are other miracle workers running around in the ancient world, and we don't always try to make them king. And like, even today, you don't turn on TBN or whatever and see somebody performing a miracle and say, well, they should obviously be president. Like, what, what's the connection here between divine power producing a miracle and some sort of like political thing. What, how do we get there? The key verse, if you only look at one verse from the Old Testament to make sense of this text in John, it's this, Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is one of the most important prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And what Moses says to Israel is pretty straightforward. He says that God is going to raise up for you from among your own people a prophet like me. Listen to him, and that's it. Listen to him. So, 
when the crowds who've just eaten the fish and the loaves say this one is the prophet coming into the world, what they're saying is Deuteronomy 18 is being fulfilled right in front of us. That's the guy Moses was talking about. That's the guy Moses is talking about. But here I have to fill in another little gap. This one is not nearly as popular as Deuteronomy uh, 18 because even if you recognize that the crowd sees Jesus as the prophet in the way that Moses talked about, where did this king thing come from? If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 33 now, chapter 33 verse five is really important for the way that Jesus' contemporaries who were reading the Old Testament thought about Moses. And it's, it's kind of a contested little verse because nobody quite reads it the same way, but there's this theme that you see across a bunch of different readers in the ancient world. So Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse five, and I'm gonna quote again. The text says, at your feet they all bow down, and from you receive instruction. The law that Moses gave us, the possession of the assembly of Jacob, and here's the key verse. He was king over Jeshurun when the leaders of the people assembled along with the tribes of Israel. Now. I don't expect you to have picked up on everything from that one reading. You can go look at it yourself. This is all you really need to see. That verse, Deuteronomy 33, verse five, is a little bit ambiguous. In its broader context, that that sentence, he was king, probably refers to God, God being king. But the closest name of a person to the word he is Moses. And so when you look at the way that Deuteronomy gets read, Uh, in what you could call Second Temple Judaism. I mean, Jews about the time of Jesus. A lot of them read that verse as saying, Moses was a king. Moses must have been a king. He was king over Jeshurun, that's Moses. So when the crowds here are looking at Jesus and saying, this is the prophet who's come into the world, and then their first thought is, we better go make him king, what they're trying to do is be as faithful to the law as possible. They're trying to say that this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, and because the Messiah is the prophet like Moses, and because Moses was king over Jeshurun, Deuteronomy 33, therefore, what's our responsibility? Let's go make him king. Everybody tracking so far? And honestly, I have to say, I find that kind of an empathetic position to be in. It's easy for me to put myself there mentally and be like, you know, I might well have done the same thing. These folks are folks who are just really, really politically frustrated. And I'm sure none of us in this room know what that's like. Because, I mean, we're coming up on an election year, and I already cannot wait to break out the buttered popcorn and sit down and watch the Iowa caucuses. But when I think about it, like, what wouldn't you give in the coming election year to have the opportunity to vote for, say, Abraham Lincoln? Like, wouldn't that be great, as opposed to any of the figures on the national stage today, whatever you think about them? Wouldn't you prefer somebody like Lincoln? That's kind of the position that the crowds are in. They're looking at the world around them, and they're seeing their nation oppressed by the Romans, and they're seeing, like, their own national leaders being, let's just say, like, less than awesome. And they get excited at the thought that here's the Messiah, and the Messiah is supposed to be a prophet king. So here he is, let's go. Why would they think then that he's the prophet king? 
Now we're gonna start working back from the beginning of the passage. First off, remember the setting. Where is all this happening? This is all happening up on a mountain. What does Moses do? Like Moses is the one who goes up on the mountain, receives the law of God, brings it down, teaches it to the people. What else does Moses do? Moses is the one who provides like bread and meat in the wilderness. Impossible bread and meat. Manna and quail in abundance that feed the people for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And what did Jesus just do? I mean, it's like some version of the same miracle. He just provided bread and meat in the wilderness for an impossible number of people. So, I mean, Moses is as Moses does, I guess, right? I mean, you would start to think this guy must be the prophet like Moses if he's doing the sort of thing that Moses would do. And again, like that's not the wrong conclusion to draw. What Jesus has just said at the end of chapter five is that the signs that he does are the Father's testimony to who he is. The signs that he performs, he doesn't do them of his own volition. These are the things that the Father has given him to do, and they're the Father's testimony on behalf of the Son about who the Son actually is. And so when Jesus here, now just a couple verses later in chapter 6, is doing the things that you might expect a prophet like Moses to do, and he's doing it in the power of God, I mean, the crowds seem to be onto something here. Like, this is, this is who Moses is. This is what Moses does. The only way to explain this is as a miracle expressing divine power. This is God testifying to who this prophet is. So we should probably make him our king. I mean, and I got, there's even some indication in this passage that whatever is going on, Jesus almost looks a little bit better than Moses. Because think about what Moses says about the manna when it's in the wilderness. He says, just only gather enough for the day. Only gather enough for the day. But some folks amongst like, the tribes of Israel in the wilderness don't listen to Moses. They, gather, they try to store up like, more than they need for the day, and it all starts to rot and putrefy, and there's maggots on it, and it stinks, and Moses is understandably displeased. But when Jesus multiplies the fish and multiplies the loaves, he doesn't say, gather only what you need for the day. He tells the disciples, go gather up everything that's left so that none of it will be wasted. So there, there's almost this sense that there's, there's something superior about the food that Jesus is giving to the people in front of him compared to what Moses gave Israel in the wilderness. Because it's, he, I mean, later at the end of the chapter, he admits, like, eventually that food is going to spoil. But it's not going to happen, like, overnight in the way that it did with, uh, with Moses and the manna. There's just so much Moses stuff happening here. I mean, again, if you flip back to chapter five, at the very end of chapter five, John is already preparing your, your kind of readerly ear to see Moses in this text because Jesus is starting to say things like, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. He's prepping you to see him as the prophet like Moses. And later on, when we get to the very end of chapter six, one of the toughest and most important sections of the whole gospel, Jesus explicitly compares what he is doing with what Moses did. He compares the bread that, and the wine that he wants to provide with what Moses provided in the wilderness. So now I have to sit back and ask, like, whoa, I mean, did, did the crowds just get something right? That would be a bigger deal than maybe it initially seems because all throughout the gospel, folks have been really trying to figure out who Jesus is. And they haven't, 
nobody's really been sticking the landing, to be frank. I mean, at the very beginning, when Jesus is calling the disciples for the first time, think about what he says uh, back in, in the back and forth with Nathaniel. Nathaniel gets to know him, he, and Jesus says, you know, before, before you saw me, I saw you under the fig tree, all of that. Nathaniel's like, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus is like, yeah, so close, but no, I mean, I'm the son of man. Like that, Daniel, that Danielic figure, the one who ascends from on high like a son of man, but who's really kind of a divine figure. Like Nathaniel hasn't quite got it. And then when we get to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is really trying to make sense of who Jesus is, but there's no sense that Nicodemus ever really kind of believes. He's grappling, but he doesn't really believe. And then you get to the woman at the well who's a Samaritan, and she's waiting for this prophet to really come and make sense of all of the divisions between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and I'm, I'm not gonna teach that whole biblical history lesson, but it's good times. Um, and she's trying to make sense of him the way that a Samaritan would. She, you know, she's, she's also expecting the prophet who's gonna come and explain everything to them, but Jesus is more than that. Nobody who's trying to make sense of Jesus is ever really getting, getting the whole Jesus. But here, like, the crowd seems to have actually understood John's point. He's been preparing you since the end of chapter five to see that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. So why then does Jesus run away? Because the crowd also gets sort of who Jesus is, but they get just enough truth to be dangerous. They get just enough truth to like misunderstand in the end. I mean, if that's not too oxymoronic a way to put it, uh, because Jesus is really, really clear. Again, when he's talking with Nathaniel, he's trying to adjust Nathaniel's expectations about what kind of king he is. And in a few chapters, when he's gonna be standing in front of Pontius Pilate, and Pilate's like, oh, so you're a king then? And Jesus is like, yes, but no. Like, I am a king, but my king's not of this ion, of this age, of this world system. These are the folks, this crowd here in John chapter five, who want to make, or six rather, who want to make Jesus king by force. And Jesus isn't gonna let him because that's not actually who he is. And I have to say that for me, this is the point where it starts to feel kind of like personally dicey and shaky because the crowd is not totally wrong. The crowd is not totally wrong. They're trying to make sense of Jesus in the best possible way by lining up their experience of him with what they see in scripture. But their interpretation of scripture in their minds is like logically prior to who Jesus actually is. And so they try to cram Jesus into the box that they've built on the basis of their interpretation of scripture. And then they try to act as if they've got it right, and that's when Jesus leaves. None of us have ever done that. This is where it really starts to get dicey for me today. This is the challenge for me personally, and I think for the church collectively. We, we are, it's so easy to misunderstand Jesus because we're trying to assimilate him into our well-intentioned, sometimes super thoughtful, but ultimately misguided systems of interpretation. We need Jesus to be who we need him to be on the basis of what we've said he has to be. Instead of letting him come and be who he is and rearrange our understanding of who he needs to be. 
And this is where it gets dicey, because uh, this, this is a big principle. Like, if you only heard one thing from this sermon, this is not the point to the sermon, but if you left with this, this would still be good. If you get the theology wrong, you will get the ethics wrong after it. If you misunderstand what is actually true about who Jesus is, and then you really try to be a good disciple and base your life on him, you're gonna act wrong even if you think you're doing it in the name of Jesus. And it's so easy to do. It's so subtle. That's what happens with the crowds here, and that, I think, is what often happens with a lot of us and with a lot of us in the church who are really desperately trying to pay attention to Jesus. All right, so this is the question. If I could really just ask one question for all of us today, it's this. Are we willing to slow down and ask ourselves to entertain the possibility that we might be missing something? Are we missing anything? When we were preaching through Ezekiel not that long ago, when we were preaching through Ezekiel, uh, one of the questions that members of the staff executive team, like Pastor Nick and Mike, uh, would ask each other and me regularly would be, are we like missing any of the things that Jesus has already clearly told us to do? Because that was a lot of the problem with what, with what happened in Israel at, at the time of the exile. They were just overlooking blazing past things that God had clearly told them to do. So we just kind of called that the Ezekiel question. I want to raise it again today. Are we missing anything? And how would we know? Um, but again, this is where it gets tough. Let me just use an analogy here. I mentioned schema theory briefly, like this, this sense that we need to, we try to usually make sense of new knowledge on the basis of old or pre-existing knowledge. How many of you are just not awesome with technology? Like for me, it's not that I'm not awesome at technology, it's just that I keep snagging my cell phone antenna on my shirt when I pull it out of my pocket. <laughs> um, Because I'm not amazing at technology, because I am more comfortable reading people who wrote in ancient languages 2,000 years ago than I am with technology today, whenever my employer, whoever it is, like this, is, this has just been a normal in the history of my adult life, whenever my employer is like, hey, you should really use this software program, it always takes me about 36 months to get the hang of it. <laughs> and. It's not that the software is bad. I mean, I can look around and see so many of my coworkers who are just nailing it within a week or two. It's just that I don't really have the pre-existing knowledge and skill set that I need to be an early adapter or to pick up on it quickly. The church is in the same position when it's confronted with Jesus and with his teachings especially the church that has spent a long time pouring over the scripture, pouring over Christian history, pouring over Christian doctrine, really trying to figure out who Jesus is and, and what we should do as a result of who Jesus is. But this is the reason why I say that we should just take a step back and ask ourselves, are we missing anything? It's not because I'm like leading up to thumping you with the thing that I think this church has been missing. Uh, I think that this church does a really, really good job of being intentional and faithful and earnestly trying to seek God and God's truth. Our elders and our pastors for years and years and years have taken scripture about as seriously as any church that I've ever seen. It's so impressive to me and that's one of the reasons why I'm honored to serve as a pastor here. 
But when you look around at the church world, as, let's just say as it exists in North America today, this is the, if you're honest, this is the situation we're all faced with. Uh, you could call it, quote, pervasive interpretive pluralism. Pervasive interpretive pluralism. That's not my phrase. That comes from a, a sociologist who spends a lot of time studying the church in North America. His name's Christian Smith. And when Christian Smith is talking about pervasive interpretive pluralism, this is, this is what he's saying. He's saying, like, you've got all of these Christians who share a ton in common, a ton in common, but when it comes time for them to really explain what the Bible means and to do some very practical things, like decide how your church should be governed, say, or to decide who should be baptized, or to decide who can be an elder, or to decide, you know, should we speak in tongues or not, and so on and so forth, people keep arriving at different answers, like really different answers, like answers that can't all be true at the same time. Pervasive interpretive pluralism. They're all reading the same Bible. They're all praying to the same God. They're all gathering for worship in a very similar manner every Sunday, and they don't agree. That's the situation where all of us are practicing our faith in North America today. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that honestly? Um, one temptation is just to double down. It's really, really tempting at this point. This is the sermon that I wish I could preach to you because it would just feel so delicious to be like, but we have the truth because X, therefore the Catholics are wrong and the Methodists are wrong and the Pentecostals are wrong and the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong and I could, I could preach you that sermon. And that would feel really good and it would reinforce who we are and how awesome we are as High Point Church on the west side of Madison in the year of our Lord, 2023. <laughs> but how would I know I was actually right? I mean, honestly. I mean, how would any of us know that we're actually right? A better approach when you're faced with pervasive interpretive pluralism, like every single one of us is, is humility. To look around at the church or the churches around us and to assume at least that their heart, their intentions, their motivations, their interest and love for Jesus is at least as sincere as all of ours is. And then to be confident that the God who called us, the God who teaches us, the God who reveals himself in Jesus to us is also seeking those people to the degree that we have experienced the compassion of God that enlightens our darkness, to the degree that we've all experienced that, that great verse from John that we'll preach later, that if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself, that we've all been drawn. Jesus has been lifting up and he is drawing all of those people too. And he's still drawing me. He's still drawing me. My point here is not to reinforce some sort of like wishy-washy pluralism. I do not think that Christianity is like that uh, proverbial elephant where we're all just blind folks who are touching a little bit of the elephant 
and we've got some of the truth, but not all of the truth, therefore everybody's good and everybody's okay. I, I do think that you can talk about Jesus and come to know and understand Jesus in scripture in better and in worse ways. And like, there's a reason why I'm a pastor at this church and not name like X, Y, or Z church throughout the city or throughout the country. Because I, I like, at a certain point, I feel that I reach a state of confession where I have to say, I believe this to be true and I'm willing to step out and put my money where my mouth is or vote with my feet. Like, this is where I'm gonna worship. You all are the folks I'm gonna worship with. But I also have to be honest and say that I am both confident in what God has said to me and I am aware of my limitations and my ongoing need for God to continue drawing me to Jesus and continue revealing him to me so that I don't find myself in the position one day where I look up the mountain and see Jesus' back receding over the hill. Because that's where this thing goes if I double down too hard and hold on too firm, too fast, too long. So ask yourself, like, what Jesus are you okay with? Who's the Jesus that, like, if you, if you actually had to sit down and some mean college professor said, write me a five-page essay on who Jesus is. Who would that Jesus be? What would they look like? I mean, are you okay with the Jesus who preaches love? I mean, this is in some ways the one who is most palatable to a lot of us and to the world around us. Jesus, the great moral teacher who tells us all to love one another. Believe it or not, a lot of Christians are actually not okay with that guy. And one of the reasons why they're not okay with him is because the rest of the world around them is. Do we get turned off to the fact that Jesus actually is the living example of love, love incarnate, because that there, there are some folks that we don't like who like that Jesus? Consider, are you okay with the Jesus who comes as a perfect judge, preaching perfect justice, discriminating between truth and falsehood, between sin and righteousness? Are you okay with a Jesus who has the moral authority to look me and you and every one of us in the eye and say, no, no. Even if the reasons that Jesus gives us don't line up with like the best moral standards of the late Western liberal democracy that we live in. We live, we live in a culture that has a really, really rich moral tradition. But at the end of the day, a lot of the cardinal principles embedded in our Western moral tradition are not actually like, Christian, even if they're Christian adjacent. So we place a whole lot of stock in the West on like the autonomy of the individual, the right of each person to determine who they are and how they like, express themselves in the world, their own individual right to pursue what they think is the good life and to, like, to figure out for themselves amongst competing options what the good life is. Is Jesus really interested in giving you and me a range of good options and then saying, go find it for yourself? No. So are we okay with a Jesus who is willing to stand up to like even one of the most fundamental issues or fundamental standards of good and right and wrong that, that the culture around us would recognize. I mean, it's a painful one, but this is one where I always find that I'm out of alignment with the culture around me. I have to say that at the end of the day, when Jesus returns as king, who, what he's not doing in John 6, 
When Jesus returns as king and receives the kingdom for his own, he is not going to say, I am definitely gonna take over China, definitely gonna take over India, definitely gonna take over the Philippines, but America, you guys, you got it. (laughs) No. No, when Jesus comes back, he's gonna give me and all of us the perfect justice and the perfect way of living that we're all ordered towards and that we all require and need, and that's not going to be a moral order that's rooted in our autonomy and our ability to rule and govern ourselves. That's a little painful. So then, now that I've said that, ask yourself, are you really okay with a Jesus who brings perfect justice and perfect judgment? Are you okay with the idea that it's Jesus who's the redeemer of the world, which necessarily requires of me, of you, of every one of us, that we acknowledge that we're sinners, that what we do offends God and hurts the people around us? Are you okay with that? And I could go on. Now, I don't want to jump the gun because this is going to be something we come back to in a couple weeks when we talk about the last half of John 6. But I I do want to say, there is a remedy to all of this. There there is a way to ensure that we don't find ourselves in the position of the crowds trying to forcibly make Jesus king in some sense, only to look up and see him running away, leaving us behind, and us desperately like trying to catch up, because that's what the crowds are about to do. They're going to figure out where Jesus went. They're going to hop, hop in boats. They're going to run on foot. They're going to do everything they can to get back to where Jesus is. The way to make sure that we don't end up like the crowds, applying our mistaken lenses to Jesus, is this. It's the second half of Deuteronomy 18.15. It's it's not the verse that's quoted here, but it's the verse that explains what's happening here. The second half of the verse about the prophet like Moses, three words, listen to him. Just listen to him. There's a few places where you can keep on listening to him. Listen to him in scripture. The fact that people disagree about what scripture means doesn't give me or you or anybody else an excuse not to try to listen there. Do your level best and go there confessing before Almighty God that you are not intelligent enough, wise enough, educated enough, whatever, to find the true meaning of scripture on your own and that you need his help because that's what he's promised to give you. Like, that's what he's promised to give you. Just think about what it would be like for the, again, I'll go back to the prophet Daniel trying to make sense of Jeremiah and praying about Jeremiah week after week after week until finally, like, God sends Gabriel to explain what's going to happen. That is really, in narrative form, the Christian experience of Bible reading. We stare at this thing, we wrestle with it, but it ultimately takes a revelatory act of God to reveal the truth to us so that we know and discern the truth. Okay, so look for God in scripture. Look for Jesus in scripture. Look for Jesus in the church. When we get to John chapter 16, Jesus is gonna say, it's good for you that I go away because if I do, the spirit will come and the spirit will lead you into all truth. For those of you who come from like a Pentecostal charismatic background, that means that the Holy Spirit has always been active in the church even before the Azusa Street revival. And that when we look back over the great tradition of the church, what we're looking for is not just the things that human beings figured out. We're looking, we look at the history and tradition of the church because we're confident that the Holy Spirit has always been leading the church. And therefore, when we study Christians from the past and their work and their ministry and the lessons that they learn, we can find there the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need to give us wisdom today. Another place that we can look is in each other. 
Listen to each other, because if the situation that we're all confronting is pervasive interpretive pluralism, and not all of us can be right, that doesn't mean that some of us aren't right. And the only way, some of, really one of the best ways to find the truth in our own day, seeking after Almighty God, is to look at the Christians around us, especially the ones with whom we disagree, beginning from this premise, that we might be wrong and they might be right, and we're going to give God the chance to show us. We're going to give God the chance to show us, because if I'm wrong and I'm missing it, then wow, I need my sister and my brother in Christ to open my eyes to a better understanding of Scripture. Uh, Worship team, you can get ready to come. I mean, I think about the way that God has used people, uh, Christians with whom I disagree in my own life. I remember growing up, I, uh, I worked in a Christian bookstore. And boy, was it fun to mock the people who bought Christian fiction books, because I was a snob. But, (laughs) you know, I I grew up in this, in a Pentecostal church, an Assemblies of God church. I'm really thankful that I did. I learned an awful lot as a young person growing up in a Pentecostal church. But one of the things I was real sure about was that Reformed folk were real wrong about this predestination thing. I was like, like, that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. And finally, one night, uh, one of my friends was working with me. His name was Chris. And uh, Chris was working in this Christian bookstore while he was putting himself through seminary. And uh, I just remember him kind of looking at me and he's like, he figured out that I was worked out enough that I wasn't worth fighting with. So what he said was, "Uh, Devin, when you're on break, will you just read Ephesians 1? And I was like, yeah, sure. Because, you know, I know I'm right. I'm not intimidated by the Bible. And, And... And then I went and I read Ephesians 1, and I got to those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And I was like, shoot. And that was the, but like in the providence of God, that was the day when God started to open my eyes to the fact that he might be a little bit bigger and wilder than I thought he was. And he started to lead me towards all of these great reformed thinkers and pastors and theologians who radically expanded my understanding of who God was and how he worked. Now, I'm not gonna go into like all the nuts and the bolts of predestination here, right? That's, that's a six-week sermon series. <laughs> but the point is that I needed my brother to look at me and say, I think you're wrong. Let's go back to Scripture together. So, in sum, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. The crowd's got that right. They even understand that he's a king though probably not for the right reasons. Their problem is that they, they believe their interpretation of Moses more than they will believe Jesus. Like Jesus says in John 5, if you really believed Moses, you would believe me. But they are happy enough to settle for their interpretation of Moses that even when the prophet like Moses tells them that they're wrong, They're going to go with their interpretation rather than with the prophet like Moses. That's a challenge for every single one of us because it is so difficult to lay down these big structures that we build up in our minds about who Jesus is and what the church is and what our place all in it is. So this is my challenge to you. Hold on to Jesus with humble certainty. Certainty that he is actually the prophet like Moses, which means he speaks to you. He speaks to me. He speaks to the church. He gives us the truth. But with the humility to recognize that Like Calvin said, every human heart is an idol factory. And so along the way, we are going to tend to build wrong things, even from the text of Scripture, and we're going to need Jesus to come along and knock our idols down.
Now we know in part, now we prophesy in part. So what you believe about Jesus may be the most important thing about you that you can control. And so here's the thing to believe also about Jesus, is that he loves you enough to help you believe the right thing. That's why he keeps talking. So you can be confident that as you keep looking, he will keep talking. And this requires all of us to beware of trying to cram him into our boxes. Our boxes are not big enough. It's like trying to hold an ocean in a cardboard box. It doesn't work. Let him come, like just totally destroy, melt the box, and then fit everything else into him. Amen. Stand with us, and let's respond out of that.